Hey everyone, quick announcement. If you want to support this podcast, check out my website, useconpodcast.com. There you'll find a link to my Patreon as well as some other interesting things, like the list of books and resources I use in putting each show together. Some other ways you can support this project are by subscribing to the show, writing reviews, or sharing the podcast on social media. One last thing, make sure you follow at useconpodcast on Twitter. Alright, now for the history of US economics. When we finished the last episode, the U.S. had just experienced its first post-Revolutionary War economic collapse, which was the Panic of 1819. As a recap, the roots of the Panic of 1819 were laid during the War of 1812 between the United States and Britain. The U.S. government struggled to pay for the war and ultimately turned to the private banks, offering them debt in exchange for any paper bills the banks could print. As an added bonus, the government permitted the suspension of specie repayments, effectively unleashing the printing presses. This meant that banks no longer had to swap out paper for gold and silver whenever the note holders demanded. And that meant that the banks could print as much money as they wanted. It isn't hard to imagine how this sort of short-sighted, inflationary policy might backfire. But in 1812, the Madison administration didn't care. There was a war to fight. The economic ramifications of inflation could be dealt with on another day. And so they were. The can was kicked down the road. So once the war with the British was over in 1815, the next battle was against the inflation that had begun to ruin the American economy. That inflation caused prices to go up and up until they peaked sometime around the Panic of 1819. At which point, monetary policy caused lending to freeze, which plunged the U.S. economy into a multi-year depression. Along the way, though, Congress recognized that inflation is dangerous, and it chartered the Second Bank of the U.S. to help address it. The Second Bank of the United States was actually the country's third attempt at a central bank. Remember, Robert Morris's Bank of North America was the first attempt, and Hamilton's First Bank of the United States was the nation's second attempt. In this episode, we'll explore the post-war economy, which would basically be described as a dazzling inflationary boom followed by a ruinous deflationary bust. And we'll also dive into the life cycle of the Second Bank of the U.S., which was launched to help address the inflationary headwinds facing the post-war economy. Now, before we dive into the history, I want to talk about inflationary booms from a high level because this is really what gave way to the founding of the Second Bank of the U.S. Inflation is the word economists use to describe a general increase in prices and a fall in the purchasing power of money. Think about it this way. It's a general rule that something's value is a function of its scarcity. Say, for example, there were millions of Picasso paintings around the world. Well, it'd be a pretty safe bet that those paintings would be pretty cheap to purchase if that were the case. But because there are less than 2,000 Picasso paintings in existence, and many people want to get their hands on one, each painting commands a pretty high price. This same concept applies to money. If dollar bills were to stop being scarce, their value would necessarily decline. That's what they call inflation. In the years before the launching of the Second Bank of the U.S., with all of the banks printing money hand over fist at the government's behest, 
the bills they printed, as you can imagine, stopped being scarce. Therefore, the banknotes began to lose value, or as economists might say, the note's purchasing power began to diminish. This meant, unfortunately, that it would take more and more bills to purchase the same good, which to the consumer just looks like prices are going up. Now this is where inflation in the 1800s got especially dangerous. Imagine an acre of land costs $1, and that is about what an acre of land cost in the early 1800s. But one year later, that same acre of land with no new buildings, no improvements, the exact same piece of land, it now costs $1.25. Well, it's unclear whether or not that price increase was due to market forces, like supply and demand, or if that price increase had more to do with inflation. I mean, think about it, it's the year 1817, and you as an investor may not be aware of all the money printing going on at the banks. All you see is that land prices are shooting up. Imagine the effect that had on investor psychology in 1817, in the run-up to the panic. All investors were seeing was that the prices of stocks, real estate, and other investments were increasing every year, and no one really knew if that was because the assets were genuinely becoming more valuable, or if it was just an inflationary boom. It was hard to tell the two apart, though in hindsight we know that the asset prices were increasing largely due to inflationary forces. Investors at the time may not have known, leading people to buy stocks and real estate more and more. And of course, whenever there's an increased demand for an asset, that increased demand alone will push the price of that asset up. So the economy in 1819 was caught in this dangerous feedback loop of inflation and investor demand. As inflation caused the price levels to appreciate, investors tried to buy more stocks and buy more real estate. And as investors bought those assets, they oftentimes took out loans from the banks in order to do so, such as mortgages or buying on margin. Well, this put pressure on the banks to print more money and lower lending standards so as to fund more loans. But as the banks printed more money, inflation worsened, which caused prices to go up even more. Well, this cycle continued until a cataclysmic day of reckoning in 1819, when the banks could print no longer. And all that irrational exuberance among the investors, which had been pushing prices up, turned into a panic, and it routed prices across the country. This is, in a nutshell, what happened from a 50,000-foot level during the Panic of 1819, and it was the environment into which the Second Bank of the U.S. was born. So now we'll dive into the details of why Congress hoped a central bank might be a solution to that inflationary problem. So just for context, during the 18-teens, the Wholesale Price Index, which is a measure of inflation, had gone from 126 in 1811 to 170 in 1815, which is a 35% increase due to all of the private banks printing so much money during the war. To help get the rising prices under control, the federal government turned to chartering a central bank in 1816. Congress hoped that that central bank could serve two major functions. The first was helping to slow down inflation and stabilize the currency, as I just mentioned, and the second was to serve as a lender to the government and to help restore confidence to holders of the federal debt. You might remember that after the previous central bank had shut its doors in 1811, that was Alexander Hamilton's first bank of the United States, 
the federal government was forced to fund the War of 1812 with 300 or so different private banks and each of their different individual currencies that they printed. Well, that turned out to be a chaotic nightmare, which Congress was determined to never have to experience again. So, considering that, and following a letter signed by 150 New York businessmen, which pleaded with Congress to address the deteriorating currency and debt situation, the House and the Senate managed to deliver a bill to President James Madison, which would formally launch a central bank. So by 1816, James Madison, who you remember was aligned with Thomas Jefferson against the first bank of the U.S., had changed his views in favor of a central banking solution. Madison realized the need for the federal government to have a singular institution from which it could borrow money. And he also wanted to see the U.S. move towards a single currency instead of the hundreds of different banknotes currently in circulation. And lastly, President Madison was also pressured by powerful businessmen like John Jacob Astor, David Parrish, Stephen Gerrard, and Jacob Barker, who had personally lent millions of dollars to the federal government even while it was in the throes of a bankruptcy during the war when no one else would lend it any money. Obviously, it was in those men's interest that the government should get the debt situation figured out, and the businessmen believed that a central bank was the best way of accomplishing that. It kind of reminds me of the same reason why Robert Morris fought so hard to establish the Bank of North America back in 1781. Morris was, after all, remembered as the financier of the revolution. Or, in other words, the federal government owed Morris a lot of money, and Morris wanted to make sure that he was paid back with interest. Anyway, once Congress managed to deliver a bill of charter for the Second Bank of the U.S. to Madison, he promptly signed it into law in April of 1816. The bank was endowed with $35 million in capital, making it the largest institution by far in the United States at the time. Throughout its tenure, the bank ultimately opened 26 branches spread out across the United States, each branch capable of redeeming paper notes for specie and issuing loans. Another of the bank's goals was to coerce private banks to begin exchanging notes for specie again, which proved to be a delicate task. It wasn't as easy as just creating a law that said the banks needed to suddenly start redeeming specie again or something. You see, there was a shortage of gold and silver in the states, and so the issue had to be approached carefully so as not to shock certain banks into insolvency. But even so, the central bank was mostly successful in assisting the banks back to redeeming specie for the notes that they had printed. The central bank did this by offering the private banks massive grants of debt in return for the resumption of exchanging specie for their notes. This worked, though it contributed heavily to inflation, because the debt notes from the central bank were considered as good as cash, and nearly $10 million of those notes found their way into circulation. In fact, due to the increased notes in circulation, as well as increased credit originating from the central bank, between 1816 and 1818, the money supply grew by about 40%, Side note on that, all of this new money circulating in 1817, well, it had to go somewhere. Stockbrokers who had been practicing their craft on the curbs of New York City found it necessary to set up an indoor stock exchange to accommodate all of the new trading volume. Such was the founding of the New York Stock Exchange in 1817. So the central bank succeeded in helping private banks resume specie payment. 
but it did so at the cost of worsening inflation. Central bankers apparently didn't anticipate that the debt they issued might end up in circulation. Or maybe they did, but they wagered that getting banks to resume the exchange of notes for specie on demand was worth the cost. Regardless, that isn't the reason why the early days of the Second Bank of the U.S. are remembered for their incompetency. For one, the managing of 26 branches spread out across the U.S. proved an impossible feat. Gradually, the lending standards at each bank fluctuated so that some banks gave out loans like candy, while others, such as those in New York and Boston, were much more conservative. Making matters worse, the Baltimore branch mired itself in outright fraud. That branch's president happened to also be the president of another firm in town, and used the Baltimore branch's money to secretly fund his other business. But the branch in Baltimore was just part of a larger whole, and the dollars and notes that it issued were redeemable for gold and silver from any other branch of the central bank. This had the effect of moving gold and silver out of the vaults of the conservative banks and into the vaults of the profligate lenders. A major factor that added to the dysfunction of the first years of the Second Bank of the U.S. was its president, William Jones. Jones was a military man who ran the Treasury for one year before being put in charge of the largest institution in the United States, the Central Bank. He's remembered most for his inept response to when the English began demanding specie from American banks. Instead of, say, turning to foreign countries for loans as later bank president Langdon Cheeves did, Jones responded by demanding gold, silver, and immediate loan repayment from the private banks, who then turned around and demanded gold, silver, and immediate loan repayment from the common people. This policy of credit contraction violently shrunk the money supply and froze lending in the American economy. Suddenly, banks stopped making loans, and with no more fuel to burn, asset prices across the country suddenly popped. People lost their fortunes and their properties, and unemployment spiked as businesses went bankrupt. This was known as the Panic of 1819. From the peak of the bubble until its collapse, the wholesale price index went from 182 to 98, a drop of 46%. It was catastrophic. Regarding Jones's actions to contract lending and demand sudden loan repayment once the English started playing economic hardball, author William Gouge noted, quote, The bank was saved and the people were ruined, unquote. Jones resigned from his position as president of the Second Bank of the U.S. in 1819 amid the economic disaster. He was replaced by a new president, Langdon Cheeves. Upon accepting his role, Chiefs described the state of the bank as, quote, a ship without a rudder, or sails, or a mast, on short allowance of provision and water on stormy seas far from land, unquote. So, pretty dismal. But Chiefs managed to stabilize the credit situation in the country by first taking out a loan from Europe to satisfy the domestic liquidity needs and England's demands, and then putting a halt on all loan repayment from private banks which took the pressure off of them and in turn took the pressure off of the common people. This, combined with some operational maneuvers like redistributing capital amongst the various branches to those most in need, helped to defray the panic and restore some confidence in the banking system. Despite being immensely popular and successful at stabilizing the economy after the Panic of 1819, Langdon Cheeves chose to step down from the bank in 1822, handing the reins of control to the infamous Nicholas Biddle. Nicholas Biddle, 
the central banker who went rogue after losing his power, was the third president of the Second Bank of the U.S. He is widely regarded for his skillful handling of the central bank until its demise at the hands of President Andrew Jackson. While Langdon Chiefs left the bank on square footing, with credit restored and prices recovering, Biddle enhanced the bank's standing with prudent policy. Firstly, Biddle initiated a practice of asset-backed lending to fuel the rise of cotton in the South. This meant that the loans that he issued were of similar value to some quantity of cotton. From the bank's perspective, an asset-backed loan was much less risky, because if the debtor defaulted for some reason, the bank could then foreclose on the cotton and resell it on the market to recoup its losses. These loans were an ideal solution for the Southern entrepreneurs recovering from the Panic of 1819, and helped to quickly stimulate the Southern economy which was reeling in the aftermath of the Panic. Biddle also understood the importance of a central bank during an economic crisis. Having observed the mishandling of the bank during the Panic of 1819, Biddle wrote of the importance of holding reserves during the good times to be used to stimulate the economy during the bad times. In other words, when profits were good, the central bank should put some money aside and use it to stimulate the economy if it ever slowed down in the future. Like Chiefs before him, Biddle also took full advantage of the foreign exchange markets to augment the money supply as needed. When the central bank's reserves weren't enough to provide credit during an economic downturn, Biddle used an influx of foreign capital to do the job. Under Biddle, at least before he turned evil, Gone were the days of the central bank suddenly demanding repayment of loans at a moment's notice. Nicholas Biddle was also successful at coercing banks to redeem their notes for gold and silver, and throughout his tenure, the wholesale price index stabilized, which is remarkable considering the rampant inflation and then dramatic deflation of the previous years. The economy under Biddle's monetary policy experienced stabilized growth, stabilized wages, and a steady inflow of foreign investments. Despite historians' consensus that Biddle was a competent and skillful banker, there were some major oversights which ended up costing Biddle his bank. For one, Biddle turned the bank into an elitist institution, granting loans to only exclusive, often well-connected recipients. From an outsider's perspective, this turned the bank into a good old boys club. But from the bank's perspective, this was just prudent lending. After all, was it not loose lending and printing policies that had inflated prices before the Panic of 1819? Regardless, Biddle's selective lending practices led to discontent as common entrepreneurs and investors were unable to access bank credit. The upcoming politician Andrew Jackson, ever the populist candidate, rode this wave of discontent to help fuel his election in 1828. Andrew Jackson, however, was more than just a populist novus homo. He was also a laissez-faire libertarian. What I mean is that he believed in a small government, the promotion of states' rights over federal authority, low tariffs, and zero government involvement in the banking sector. Jackson also wanted a specie reserve ratio of one to one, which meant that a bank must hold one dollar worth of gold for every dollar that it had printed. In other words, a perfect gold standard by paper proxy. Side note on this, Jackson's idea of a one-to-one -one reserve ratio came from watching banks print more and more currency during the run-up to the Panic of 1819. In that period, some banks were printing up to $20 worth of paper notes for every $1 of gold or silver held on deposit.
which was highly risky and caused the banks to collapse during the panic. It meant that a bank would run out of gold or silver very quickly once note holders came asking for gold and silver. And as soon as a bank ran out of specie in its vaults, well, bye-bye bank. Jackson's one-to-one specie reserve ratio, though it would have certainly stopped inflation in its tracks and kept banks from getting overextended, would have also stopped nearly all credit in the economy, freezing economic growth. When it came to economics, beliefs like this caused Andrew Jackson to be labeled by later historians as a, quote, ignorant anti-capitalist agrarian, unquote. Jackson despised the central bank of the U.S. Not only did he represent the popular distrust and feeling of inequality that the bank fomented in the wake of the Panic of 1819 and ensuing depression, Jackson was also personally opposed to the bank because he suspected that it financially backed his opponent, John Quincy Adams, during their runs for the presidency in 1828. This fear was confirmed when Jackson asked Biddle to investigate a possible misappropriation of the bank's funds to the Adams campaign, and Biddle outright refused. Though ever the capable banker, a politician Biddle was not. The second bank of the U.S.'s charter was set to expire in 1836, but the presidential race was set to occur in 1832. Biddle decided to push the recharter bill through early, before the 1832 presidential campaign, while Jackson was still president. Knowing that Jackson would oppose the rechartering, Biddle hoped that the bill would sow dissent in Jackson's campaign for re-election amongst the electorate who either supported or opposed the bank. In this, Biddle could not have been more wrong. Both houses of Congress passed the renewal of the charter, but Jackson, not missing the opportunity to destroy the institution that he hated, vetoed it. Jackson vetoed the second bank of the U.S. Jackson explained his actions in a letter, saying that the bank did little more than make, quote, the rich richer and the potent more powerful, unquote. But Biddle wasn't going to take the veto lying down. He responded first by openly subsidizing Henry Clay's campaign for the presidency in 1832. Clay, of course, was running against Jackson. By the way, the polarization between the New England business class who supported the bank and the rural class who opposed it gave way to the founding of the Democratic Party in 1828, with Martin Van Buren and Andrew Jackson at its helm. Though Jackson had vetoed the renewal of the bank's charter in 1832, the second bank of the U.S. was still permitted to operate until its charter's expiration in 1836. That was the hope, anyway, until Jackson won the 1832 election in a landslide, beating Henry Clay and spelling an early doom for the central bank. Under Jackson, the executive branch proceeded to gut the central bank by moving all of the federal wealth out of Biddle's bank and into a handful of private banks. There were first seven private banks who received the federal money, but eventually 91 in all received the capital. Jackson viewed this as a democratization of power, out of the hands of the government and into the hands of the states and the people. With its wealth gone, Biddle's bank was effectively neutered. It could no longer create loans, and any money it tried to print would be necessarily fiat and undesirable. This is the point where Biddle turns from a prudent banker into a maniacal saboteur. Seeing the power of his bank being eviscerated before his eyes, Biddle responded by calling on loans for immediate repayment, the very thing that had destabilized the economy in 1819. 
he deliberately induced a national recession. One man caused a national recession between 1833 and 1834. Biddle hoped that he could induce enough pain in the economy that Jackson would be forced to renew the bank's charter. Regarding his actions, Biddle proclaimed, quote, The other banks and the merchants may break, but the Bank of the United States shall not, unquote. But Jackson, ten times the politician than Biddle, just used Biddle's recklessness as proof that power had become too centralized. Popular opinion turned against Biddle, obviously, and the bank's fate was sealed. In 1836, Biddle petitioned for the great second bank of the U.S. to become a mere state bank in Pennsylvania, following in the footsteps of Robert Morris's Bank of North America, which was likewise rechartered as a mere state bank in Pennsylvania some years before. The second bank of the United States operated as a state bank until shortly after the Panic of 1837, when reckless cotton speculation finished Jackson's work and the bank went out of business, taking Nicholas Biddle's reputation and fortune along with it. America's third attempt with a central bank started as a calamity, then smooth economic growth, then ended the way it started in economic distress. The years of the bank's existence, 1816 to 1836, were an interesting case study of central banking. When done right, the central bank was a major stabilizing force in the economy. After the Panic of 1819, it provided liquidity to struggling institutions, thus restoring confidence and averting bank runs and financial meltdowns. It also attracted European investors who had grown thoroughly accustomed to the notion of central banking and saw the Second Bank of the U.S. as a modernizing institution. And under Biddle's management, the central bank was successful at reining in inflation and stabilizing deflation. But as a demonstration of the dark side of central banking, it was poor monetary policy which pricked the bubble of 1819 in the first place. Of course, the bubble probably would have popped eventually anyway, lending like that can't go on forever, but it was incompetent monetary policy that caused the bubble to pop. And as a stark demonstration of the power that a central bank has, once Biddle went rogue, he managed to plunge the national economy into a year-long recession. William Jones, the bank's first president, was less maniacal than Biddle, but far more incompetent. Jones also managed to destabilize the economy with his policies of sudden monetary contraction back in 1819, though Jones's actions were rooted more in incompetence than malevolence. The second bank of the U.S. would be the country's final attempt at a national bank until the Civil War, though a third attempt to create a central bank would be made in 1841, but President John Tyler vetoed it before it could get off the ground. For nearly three decades then, after the demise of the second bank of the U.S., the country entered into a phase remembered as the era of free banking. Or in other words, an era of no central banking authority and no federal regulating body. If you've ever been curious what the finance industry might look like if the Federal Reserve decided to just close up shop and let the industry do as it willed, then you'll find the next era and the next episode of U.S. economic history especially fascinating. Thanks for listening to this episode of the History of U.S. Economics Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and check out the website, useconpodcast.com. Also, follow the show on Twitter at US Econ Podcast.